All right, come on in. We'll get started here this morning. Sorry, I'm a couple minutes behind. There's some notes on the back. We'll see if we can make it through the wicket gate. I think we can. I think I can. I think I can. Like the little engine that could, right? All right, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, which is, um, as we see in the Pilgrim's Progress, a light to our feet. It establishes our path. Lord, I pray that we continue to lean on your word uh, as our only source of uh, truth for life and godliness. I just pray for this morning as we look again in the Pilgrim's Progress, as we think about the law and the Mosaic Covenant in particular, that we would um, be illumined by the truths that this book contains as they accord with Scripture. I pray that it would affect how we live and how we think about living the Christian life. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to do a quick recap of last week as always. I think my computer is lagging behind. Um, We saw Christian and his new companion Pliable. They fell into the slough of despond. I looked it up, by the way. You can pronounce it slough or slough. So I don't know. I was like, how do you pronounce this word? And I looked it up and it was like slough. And then the next is like, you know how like on Google they have like, here's how you sound it out. There was slough. And then like the next one was slough. So I was like, I don't know. It's not slough, um, but I don't know. I have, I have no idea. I would say slew, but it's English. We say, yeah, we do whatever we want because we're, Engl- we're, we're Americans. Okay, uh, so Pliable falls in and he turns back to the city of destruction. <clears throat> Christian is struggling there. Help comes along. Uh, and pulls him out. He points him to the steps. What are the steps? The promises. The steps are the promises of God's word. Very important to remember that. The promises of forgiveness and acceptance uh, with Christ by faith. Uh, And then it's almost as if, uh, you know, Bunyan steps into the story himself, and he's like, hey, why does this uh, slew still exist? Why do we still have this disgusting place? What's wrong with this? And uh, he explains, you know, it talks about fears, doubts, uh, discouragements that people might have um, when they come to Christ. Maybe Christ will accept me or he won't because of how horrible I've been. Um, so a very important scene there. Someone kind of tongue-in-cheek was kind of joking last week. Um, they were like, man, you know, Pilgrim's Progress is just not really all that practical. Um, and I was like, you're wrong. I didn't say that. But, but he, he was kind of joking. And um, I just want to say, certainly that could be the case. And I kind of want to mention this throughout this class could really just turn into a fun book club. You know what I mean? Where we're just like, hey, we're reading through this book, and oh, here's this interesting thing that I found, and oh, this is kind of fun. That's not really my heart behind the class, okay? Uh, I can tend to those things because I like interesting things, um, but I don't want to do that, okay? Um, I, my hope is that, you know, as we're going through, you know, we come to scenes like the Slough of Despond, and it actually sticks with you, the biblical truth that it conveys, right? Like, maybe you fall into something like that. You're struggling with doubts, fears, um, discouragements, or you know someone, right, who's like, well, you know, I've just done all this, you know, X, Y, and Z. Christ will never accept me. Well, think about this scene. Does that make sense? So just to keep that in mind, um, the, the point is not just to study the book for fun, but actually glean the biblical truth that it conveys and actually have it stick with you and change the way you think. I think that's the other thing that I just disagree with. Whenever people, people sometimes think practical or application, and they think, okay, I need to do something, okay? Like, okay, I'm going to stop thinking this, or I'm going to positively start, 
doing this thing, like doing the dishes or something like that. I don't know. That's just a bad understanding of application. A lot of application is actually that we know something, right? Like, how many times in scripture do we see, like, know this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Like, that's a, okay, I need to know this truth and then actually live it out. So just kind of, just wanted to mention that at some point. So in this next uh, section this morning where evangelist appears back on the scene and he counsels uh, Christian is another one of those sections that I just think is really theologically rich. And so if we don't get to the wicked gate, that's okay. Um, just wanted to spend some time and think through that practically. Uh, before we get there, last week we were introduced to worldly wise men, probably alluding here to um, an Anglican uh, Church of England pastor. This is where sometimes with modern adaptations of it, I just don't like how they depict. They sometimes depict worldly wise men as just a smart guy from the world, like where he's just like a worldly person, okay? And that's true, but what Bunyan is trying to convey is actually someone who, as we'll see in the chapter this morning, who actually goes to church, who is a professing Christian, who, uh, you know, is not a worldly pagan in the sense of he hates, you know, the Bible and all that stuff, but actually the Bible needs to be left to the professionals. I know the way, you know, of truth, and you just need to be a better person. You see the difference between the two? Like, one's just like a rank pagan, and one is a wolf in sheep's clothing, okay? And he's trying to portray the latter, the wolf in sheep's clothing, (coughs) with Mr. Worldly Wiseman. Um, His whole thing is justification by works of the law, legalism, actual legalism. Sometimes people say, oh, you're just being legalistic, and it's like, well, actually, how are you using that term? No, we're not. Legalism, strict definition, is actually justification by works. I do this to be saved. Typically, when someone says you're being legalistic, they're just saying, I don't like you know, what you're doing, and you're just, oh, you have too many rules and all this stuff. Someone once said it was a pastor. I can't remember who. It's not legalism. It's discipleship. I actually thought that was a really good way. You know, if someone says, you're just being legalistic. Actually, I'm just following Christ. Um, <laughs> zing! Um, so sometimes that works. But... Uh, Take that one with you. Um, and so he, uh, and you see this clearly here, right? He condemns evangelists, right? Like he hates his theology um, of uh, the gospel. He's hostile towards the gospel of grace, and he preaches a different workspace salvation. He preaches a, another gospel, which as Paul says, not that there is another one, right? But he's teaching a false gospel. Uh, he directs Christian to the village morality, uh, in which there lives a gentleman legality. He can remove your burden. Christian says, which way is that? That's where I want to go. Do you see that high hill? What's the high hill refer to? Anyone remember? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Yeah, very important. He says, hey, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, is how you can get to a place of legality, a good standing. You can remove your burden through works of the law. Okay, Justification by works. Okay. And sadly enough, Christian goes there. He's going to Mr. Legality. Uh huh. Would you say that worldly wise men is more of a humanistic atheism and legality is more of a Christian facade? Because it seems that worldly wise men hate the gospel, but Mr. Legality would say he loves the gospel but live as a practical atheist in his legalism. Yeah, I wouldn't say worldly wise man is an atheist, because especially in this next chapter, evangelist says he even goes to church, okay? He's a church-going fellow. Worldly wise man is a church-going fellow. Um, so even just from that clue, we can see, oh, okay, like, he's not a rank pagan atheist, 
but actually someone who prefers, rather than evangelist doctrine of justification by faith, a different gospel. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you could lump in for sure Roman Catholicism with Mr. Worldly Wiseman, because it's it's still. I mean, Roman Catholicism is what justification by works, right? Which is what. Um, Worldly Wiseman is preaching. So yeah, I, I think in context, historically, Bunyan is probably pointing to a latitudinarian, right, an Anglican Church of England pastor. That was very common in that period um, because Charles II is king and he likes the Roman Catholics. So a lot of works-based theology comes in. And so that's predominant in the Church of England. So certainly, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's trying to say... Right. Yeah. Yeah, although... Yeah, I mean, the difference there is they might profess a love for the gospel. How they define the gospel is different. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's key. Good question. Good question. Okay, we're going to jump into, what are we on, chapter 6, 7? 6, right? Christian seeks after the village of morality. This is one of my favorite sections in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I'm going to read the opening paragraphs, and then we'll, we'll step back and kind of talk about it. Uh, So this is page 26, if you guys have Horner's copy. So Christian departed from his present course so as to head toward Mr. Legality's house for help. But notice that when he had drawn very close to the hill, what's the hill? Mount Sinai, right? Ten Commandments, the law of God. From that side, it seemed so high that it appeared to almost hang over him and threaten to crush him. Being paralyzed with fear, he stopped rather than go any further. As a result, he did not know what to do. Also, his burden now seemed much heavier than when he was formerly in the way. There also came flashes of fire erupting out of the hill that made Christian fear that he would be burned. For this reason, he was terrified and began to sweat and tremble in his body. Now he was sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's advice. Bunyan here is drawing together some biblical imagery, and he's trying to communicate the terror of seeking justification by works of the law. Okay? This is a terrifying thing. He comes to Mount Sinai uh, to become uh, moral, uh, to come to legality. And it's as if Mount Sinai is just getting higher and higher, right? Like he's trying to ascend it, and it's just like he's not making any progress. It looks like it's actually getting worse, that it's going to crush him, okay? It's getting worse, right? His burden, what does he say? It's even heavier than when it was before. And what he's communicating here is that, um, you know, a sinner... When they consider the holy demands of the law, the more convicted of sin they become, okay? When we consider the law, the more convicted of sin we become. I think that first blank you have in your notes there, I put the law reveals what we are not. The law reveals what we are not. I think I got that from someone. I don't know when, but it just stuck with me. Um, The law reveals what we are not. We see the holy, righteous character and standard of God and the more and more we study it, the more and more we realize that that's not us, okay? And we fall short of the glory of God as revealed in the law. This is a vital biblical truth. Um, all who rely on works of the law for justification are under a curse. Galatians 3 makes that very clear. Bunyan alludes to that later on. Uh, Galatians 3.10 says that for all who rely on works of the law for justification, if you rely on the law as your source of a right standing with God, you are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the Mosaic Covenant, 
God's law, his standard of righteousness, reveals his character. This is, I think, your second blank there. It shows us what holiness is, but doesn't empower us to obey, right? The law says, hey, here's who you need to be. Here's what you need to do. But it actually doesn't give you any strength to actually carry that out. Does that make sense? It shows you, hey, here's what's wrong. Here's what righteousness and holiness looks like, and you're not that, okay? Um, I would argue the law was never meant to be, hey, here's what's wrong, and I'm also giving, going to give you the power to obey. It doesn't do that. In fact, that's the whole problem with the Old Testament, is he's saying, hey, here's what you need to be, but here's your problem. You can't because of your heart, the sinfulness of your heart. You see the problem of the heart at the core all throughout the Old Testament. That's why you see these glorious promises of like Deuteronomy 30, where there's going to come a day where God is going to change the heart. You should be reading that and go, that's great. That's what we need, right? So that's very, very key. No one can, I've already said this, ever be justified by works of the law because no one can keep the whole law, even if you break one part of it, right? James 2 says, you know, if you break this one part, you're guilty of breaking it all, okay? So, you know, you have one little slip up and you're toast, and we all have one little slip up. The law condemns us. That is why Paul calls it, what, a ministry of death, which we'll talk about later. Um, This is key here, too, I wanted to, to... focus on a little bit. Bunyan alludes to, and he footnotes here, Exodus 19, okay? You guys should know this. What's Exodus 20? What's, what's in Exodus 20? Ten commandments, okay? If you didn't know that, now you know it. 20, half of 20 is 10, 10 commandments, okay? I don't know, just some way to remember it, or you could just remember Exodus 20, 10 commandments, okay? So Exodus 19, that's right before the 10 commandments, right? Okay, so this is the, the context, okay? This is what is going on in the context of giving the law. I think, uh, in terms of the biblical storyline, this is a really epic moment, okay? You guys know me, I like epic movies, I like epic soundtracks, I like all that. This is really epic. I don't know how else to say that, what happens here in Exodus 19. Just try and visualize, okay, this actually happened several thousand years ago, and just picture the scene, okay? I'm going to read it, just try and picture it, okay? Exodus 19, starting in verse 16, and this is what Bunyan is alluding to. On the morning of the third day, this is right before the Ten Commandments are given, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. This one just is crazy to me, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Like, can you just picture that? Like, it's hard to picture, right? Like, I'm just thinking of, like, the loudest thunder and lightning that I've ever seen. I just saw this huge mountain, and now I can't see it because it's covered in smoke. And it looks like the whole mountain is on fire, and God is on top of the mountain, and the world is shaking. Like, now I think you might see why, like, in Exodus 20, the people are like, "Uh, yeah, Moses, can you go up there? We're going to stay down here. All right, like you can sympathize with them a little bit, I hope. Verse 19, and as the sound of the trumpet, not to mention you've got this loud trumpet. I have no idea what this trumpet sounded like. Uh, it grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Sheesh, okay, man. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. That is a powerful scene, is it not? I mean, that, that is up there in terms of the sheer magnitude of the moment, I think, in all of Scripture. Um, It is amazing. And so this is where Christian has come. 
to the foot of this mountain is kind of the picture. Worldly wise man has deceived Christian. He promised him, hey, if you go to that mountain, you can lose your burden. You won't be uh, weighed down by your sin. But now, actually, the law is revealing uh, that sin is even heavier. He understands that the real culprit of death is sin. That is why he's condemned, is because of his sin. He feels condemned. He's even more weighed down by his guilt. But thankfully, evangelist shows up, right? This, this wonderful gospel-preaching pastor, <coughs> excuse me, and he asks him, he comes on the scene, he says, hey, aren't you the same one I found outside the city of destruction? Like, what are you doing here? And then he says, then how is it that you have so quickly turned aside from my direction, for you are now going the wrong way? Probably an allusion there to Galatians 1.6, right? Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly, you know, abandoning uh, the true gospel for another. Not that there is another that you've left. What follows then, evangelist asks uh, Christian, you know, some questions. How did you get here? What is going on? And he kind of just recounts the last few events that we've covered. Uh, Evangelist then says, this is on page 27, then stand still for a little while so that I can explain to you the word of God. Christian quietly listened and he trembled. Make sure that you do not reject he who speaks to you as was the manner of, of Israel. For if God's ancient people did not escape judgment when they refused to heed God's messenger on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from he who speaks from heaven? Evangelist is saying, look, learn from the example of Israel, right? Look at what happened to them. They rejected God. They wandered away and they were judged. How much more will we if we uh, abandon Christ and his word? He points him back to the truth, truth. Uh, evangelist says, I don't have it up here, he says, moreover, the just shall live by faith, right? Quoted in Habakkuk 2.4 initially, and Paul picks that up in Romans. That's the gospel, not justification by works. The righteous shall live by faith. Um, it's a false gospel that worldly wise men is teaching. Uh, then the next scene here, sorry, my computer's lagging behind a couple seconds. I don't know why. And Christian fell down at his feet as if dead. Lamentably crying, woe is me, for I am undone. Probably Isaiah 6 allusion there. At the sight of this, evangelist caught him by the right hand, saying, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. Be not faithless, but believing. As a consequence, Christian revived a little more and stood up trembling before evangelist, even as he had first done. I think it's just a simple but a beautiful picture of forgiveness, right? Um, He's quoting a couple passages uh, from the Gospels there where Christ says that. Um, Be not faithless, but believing. All manner of sins will be forgiven you. Um, it's not that someone gets to this point and you're just toast forever. If you continue down that path, yes, you are, but you can turn. God offers grace. Evangelist then goes on. He counsels him about Mr. Worldly Wiseman. He says, the man that met you is none other than Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And how right it is for him to have this name. The reason is partly because he favors only the doctrine of this world. Therefore, he always attends church, right? So you even see, like, this is a religious fellow, right? Very much in line with Roman Catholicism. Any type, I mean, you can think of Mormonism, right? Any type of religious system that preaches acceptance with God by works. Any type of works of the law. And partly because he loves the doctrine of that town the best, for it saves him from the cross. So because he is of a carnal nature, therefore he seeks to oppose my ways, even though they are right. Um, He goes on here. Three things. Three things you must utterly detest. (coughs) Very strong language here, right? Not like just like, yeah, you know, he's wrong on these things. He's like, he's wrong on these things, and you need to hate these things, okay? So I think it's just a reminder for us, like, 
a false gospel is not just something that we're like, well, you know, they've got their way, we've got ours. Like, I think the biblical calling is that we hate that false gospel, right? Why? Because it condemns people, right? It's sending people to hell. If you actually love people, you're going to tell them that this is where they are headed. All right, so there's three things. I kind of wanted to slow down on these. Uh, And this man's counsel that you must utterly detest. His ability to lead you out of the way. His zealous effort to portray the cross as abhorrent to you. And his directing of your feet toward the way that leads to the administration of death. Number one, he says, here's uh, this doctrine. You need to oppose it. You need to hate it. Number one, he turns you out of the way. The way of life. He turns you out of the way that leads to Christ. You need to hate this. Notice, I find this really insightful. This is in uh, the book, by the way, I think. Sorry, I don't have the page number here. It's wherever. 29? 29, yeah. It says, first, you must despise his ability to turn you out of the way. Yes. Notice what he says here. And your own agreement to such a proposal as well. I think that's pretty remarkable. I put a question in your notes, I think. Why do we struggle with the believing Uh, the believing of or living out the doctrine of grace and at times prefer Mr. Worldly Wiseman's gospel. Do you have that question there? Like, notice what he says there. He's like, there's actually a part of you that you agree to a doctrine of justification by works. Why do you think that is? Anyone, you can actually talk. Say anything. Well, not anything. Pertaining to the question. Yes, Why, why do we have an inclination, is what Bunyan is saying, to justification by works? Why does that appeal to us sometimes? Yes, go ahead. Because it's easy. It's all laid out for you. It tells you what to do. You don't have to think about it. You just follow the rules. Or right. the law of liberty under Christ, it requires <coughs> effort to examine ourselves, examine what Christ has for us, and be mature people, mm-hmm. not to live by the Right. Okay. Anyone else? David? Um, I would just add... <coughs> Yeah, I think that's, that's the main thing in my mind ran to is that a law of justification by work says, I'm actually good enough to do this. Like, I can't actually do this. I'm not bad. So I think it avoids the root problem of total depravity. Um, it avoids that I am condemned in of myself. Taeyang? That's good. Yep. Yeah, no, good, good thoughts. Um, yeah. Hold on, hold on. We're going to get there. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, no, 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 no. Don't steal my thunder. We're going to get there. No, that's a great point. That's a great point, and that's where I wanted to get there. Yes, yes. Hold on, hold on. Yes, we'll get there. Great stuff. Yeah, no, I think it, it goes back to that distinction of Understanding the root and the fruit of faith, right? The root of our faith is, is I mean, God-given. It's sovereign. We're saved by faith. And then good works are the production of that root, right? And we can twist that, um, thinking that our good works are actually 
the root. We can get to we can get to this point as Liz was kind of alluding to, you know, why do I have a good standing with God? We can tend to this. Well, I've been baptized. I go to a Bible believing church. I read my Bible. You don't want to start there with that's my justification with Christ. You want to start with I'm saved by grace alone. I'm saved because Christ has saved me. And therefore, I do because I love him, right? So there's a difference between those two. Good, good stuff. Number two here, his zealous effort to portray the cross as abhorrent to you. Evangelist says here, page 29, uh, you are to prefer the cross to the treasures of Egypt. Bunyan here, he's alluding to Hebrews 11, um, the hall of faith there. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I think it's a very helpful verse there. Sin actually does bring pleasure. The problem is it's fleeting. It's temporary, right? It's not lasting. It's, I mean, we would just say it's pathetic. It's actually a lie. It's a false. Um, It's not true. It's a falsity or whatever you would say there, right? Um, You know, the the pleasures, we're talking Pilgrim's Progress, the pleasures of Vanity Fair, when we get there, are real, right? Like you can actually have a wonderful life in Vanity Fair. The problem is it doesn't do anything to get you to the celestial city. It'll leave you empty wanting more, right? Um, They're not actually valuable. He goes on, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's what Bunyan is alluding to there. For he was looking to the reward. We must see in the same way the cross as, as it's truly worth and despise the fleeting pleasures of this world. Evangelist says, he goes on, Therefore I say, for a man to work hard to persuade you that the king's advice will lead to your death, that's what worldly wise men does, yet without any support from the truth. What Evangelist is saying there, worldly wise men has nothing from scripture to prove his point, okay? Go back to the word, okay? That's what you need to do, Christian. He is to be rejected since he detracts from the way that points you to eternal life. And then thirdly, his directing of your feet toward the way which leads to the administration of death. What is Bunyan alluding to there when he talks about the ministry of death? There's a verse in particular. Um, does anyone know? Yes. Which one? Do you remember? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a wonderful section where Paul is comparing the glories of the new covenant, the ministry that we now have in Christ, contrary to the old covenant, or we would say is the Mosaic covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 7, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He says, it's a ministry of death, okay? A ministry of death. Verse 9, he calls it a ministry of condemnation. In verse 6, he says, the letter of the law kills us, okay? So it's like, whoa, death, condemnation, and it kills us. Those are three things that aren't that great, Okay? Um, the Mosaic Covenant is not good in comparison uh, to the New Covenant. You could say this. The Mosaic Covenant is kind of like an x-ray. It's kind of like um, or you know, a CT scan or all these things. It clearly reveals the problem. This is kind of the point I said at the beginning. But it doesn't have actually any power in and of itself to fix the problem, right? Like, you know, a doctor who's like, all right, you come in because it's like, man, I've got pain right here in my side. They do an x-ray. It's like... Doctor looks at it with you and it's like, hey, you've got this huge thing. I have no idea what it is, but you've got a massive problem right here. Have a great day. Like you and I would be like, what in the world? Like, thanks for nothing. Like, it's like, I know I have a problem. And now I just know I have a huge problem. 
You're not helping at all. You're the worst doctor. I'm going to leave a bad Yelp review, right? No, like you need the x-ray, but you also need the skilled physician to fix the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? So the law can do that. The law does an excellent job at saying you have a huge lump and you're going to die, but you need Christ, the, you know, the new covenant to remove that problem. You see what I'm saying? So the law does that, okay? He goes on here, <coughs> evangelist, he to whom you were sent for ease, that is legality by name, is the son of the bondwoman who is in bondage along with her children. She represents Mount Sinai as a mystery which you have feared would fall on your head. Now, if she with her children are in bondage, then how can you expect to made, be made free by them? Here, Bunyan is quoting Galatians 4, uh, 421, I think the 31. This is maybe one of those passages, if you're reading through Galatians, where you just like, I don't really know what Paul's talking about, so I'm just going to keep reading. Um, if you're anything like me, that was me. Um, it's actually the only time in the New Testament where the Greek word for allegory, allegoreo, which is just, that's where we get allegory from, actually pops up, okay? So the only time we have allegory in the New Testament is right here in Galatians 4, and you're like, oh, that actually, that makes sense that Bunyan would use this passage because he's defending his book, right? Because he's saying it's like an allegory, it's like a similitude. So he's picking one passage that actually does that. And Galatians 4, we definitely don't have time to get into it. I'm happy to talk to you about it if you want later. Um, Paul is not playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. He's not saying these historical things actually didn't happen, and we can interpret them in an allegory where, you know, Isaac stands for, you know, all these 20 different weird things and, like, what people do with, like, the Song of Solomon uh, in church history, where just everything stands for all kinds of weird stuff, okay? That's not what's going on. Um, he's referring to uh, Hagar and Sarah and their children, Isaac and Ishmael, and he's saying one of them, uh, rec uh, refers to justification by faith, and one of them refers to justification by works. Um, you know, the son of the free woman, Isaac, referring to justification by faith. Uh, the son of the slave woman, uh, she's in captivity, uh, refers to Mount Sinai, legality. Um, you know, a way of justification by works and a justification by faith. Um, so, very important. That gets into, I mean, the whole context of Galatians. Um, Paul's trying to say we are justified and, this is very important, we're justified and we're sanctified by grace, not by works of the law. Um, it's a very important argument there. So that's what he's alluding to there, if you didn't know. You cannot be justified. He makes it very clear, evangelist. What is he talking about? You cannot be justified by the works of the law. For no man living can be rid of his burden by means of the works of the law. Therefore, Mr. Worldly Wiseman is an alien guide and Mr. Legality a cheat. As for his son's civility, in spite of his simpering or smiling manner, he is yet a hypocrite and cannot help you. After this, evangelist called aloud to the heavens for confirmation of what he had said. And immediately there came words and fire out of the mountain, still talking about Sinai, under which poor Christians stood that made his hair to stand on end. The words that poured forth were as follows. This is that quote from Galatians 3 I mentioned. As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to live according to all things that are written in the book of the law, that is to obey him. In this picture here in Pilgrim's Progress, Bunny's saying the law of God still speaks. It still condemns those who seek to perfectly obey it and justify themselves by works of the law. Um, but for believers, this is where we praise God that Christ has fulfilled the law in our place, okay? We don't go back and now that we have Christ, we can fulfill the law 
No, Christ has fulfilled the law in our place. Um, this gets into, you know, a side note here, but very important doctrine. Um, what pastors and theologians uh, will talk about as the active and passive obedience of Christ. It's very important. If you've never heard of that, um, the passive obedience refers to the fact that Christ died in our place. We know that, right? Like, but that's, you know, why are we saying, well, Christ died in our place, his passive obedience. But also very important here is his active obedience. Not only did Christ die in our place, he also lived in our place, okay? Both of those are very important gospel truths we have to remember. Because when God looks at us, it's not just that he sees a blank slate. It's not that Christ died for our sins. Let's say you have a negative 100 account. Well, Christ paid for your sins. It's not that you're at a neutral zero, right? He pays for our sins. He dies in our place. Our slate is cleaned, if you will. And he actually credits us his righteousness. Do you see what I'm saying? So we have to maintain both of those because then this is where it gets kind of to Liz's point is we can, we can think if we don't maintain that Christ fulfilled the law in our place, we can think, okay, now I have to do this work of sanctification to be justified. No, 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 no. We pursue sanctification because we are justified. You see, like there's a vital difference between those two. Um, and Bunyan is making that point here. Uh, and so maybe, I mean, this is a helpful, helpful reminder. Um, maybe you're talking to yourself, you're helping someone else. Remember this doctrine, okay? The active and the passive obedience of Christ. Because if you've got someone who they're like, man, you know, I, I believe in Christ. I just know that I have to do all these things, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Are we slipping into this kind of works-based salvation theology? We easily can dip into that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, for instance, we can see Christ as only our example, but not our substitute. For sure, so yeah. I would say, even like my father in law, when he would pray, he would say, We thank you for Christ, and he is our example. Mm. Which it may have just been, you know, me being too scrutinizing. Right. Which he is. He is. Right. But not so much our substitute dying in our place. Yeah. So that may be too much nuance there. But yeah. No, I think a simple way, because if you're like active, passive obedience, like why are we saying these things? A simple way you can describe it is Christ died in our place and he lived in our place. That's just a helpful, I mean, that's, I like nerdy things, but sometimes there's like keep it simple. That's just how I think about it, right? Like he died in our place for our sins. And actually, we have his righteousness imputed to us by faith because he is the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of the world who takes away the sins of the world and also credits us his perfect righteousness, okay? And that is, yeah, that saves us. Good stuff. Well, I think we'll talk about it a little bit more because, yeah, we won't get to the wicked gate. Sorry, guys. I'll leave you in some suspense. Um, let me see. Christian, yeah, he responds in agony and shame that he turned off the narrow way. He asks the evangelist, is there any hope for me now? You know, what can I do? The evangelist responds, this is page 31, Your sin is very great, since you have in fact committed two evils. 
You have forsaken the way that is good and then pursued forbidden paths. He's alluding here to Jeremiah 2.13. Really helpful verse um, in understanding sin. This is what Jeremiah 2.13 says. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sin isn't just evil because we reject God. It is. We reject God and we replace him with something that is always going to be lesser than him. Does that make sense? That is why sin is evil. Rejecting him and choosing something less uh, than him. That is what he's alluding to here. Nevertheless, the man at the gate, there's this promise of grace, forgiveness that we always have to cling to. The man at the gate will welcome you because he offers goodwill to approaching pilgrims. Even so, be careful that you do not turn aside again, for then you may perish from the way altogether when his wrath is kindled but a little he says, your sin is great, but the grace of Christ is greater. He offers goodwill uh, to approaching pilgrims. He quotes Psalm 2.12 there at the end. Uh, I was also just reminded in reading this, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. We appeal to you, uh, brothers, not to receive the grace of God in vain. He quotes Isaiah, I think it's chapter 49. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right? Like Paul has been building this theology in 2 Corinthians of the superiority, of, the superiority of the new covenant and how great Christ is. Um, we have received reconciliation, um, for he became sin. The verse right before that, for he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. She's been building this amazing gospel argument, and then chapter 6. Therefore, we appeal to you, believe and live out everything I've just said, right? And I think we can say the same thing to people that we approach, right? Never, never, I mean, we kind of have to leave people with, you know, we've, we've presented the gospel to them. You're a sinner, condemned, you need Christ, go to him. We always have to leave people with, you have to make this choice. You have to turn to Christ. But I would encourage people, encourage you guys to press people, right? Like, it's not like you shouldn't think about like, oh, I'll just think about this later. Like, it's like, no, you actually need to decide right now because today is the day of salvation. You might not have tomorrow. You see what I'm saying? Um, I think Paul is making that point as well. So now, and this is where I want to pause. We're supposed to be done at 9.45, so we'll wrap up here anyways. I wanted to get to the wicked gate, but that's okay. Um, in this scene we just read, okay, um, Christian is not a believer, right? He has not yet come through the wicked gate. That's literally the next chapter, okay? Um, this is, the idea here is an unbeliever seeking to be justified by works of the law. But I think we as Christians can easily slip into, as we've already kind of been talking about, Liz, some of those questions, right? We can slip into Mount Sinai thinking, okay? We can slip into, maybe not even like at the forefront of our mind. I don't want to say like subconscious because we actually are thinking it. We never, we never say, I'm seeking to be justified by works of the law, but we're kind of living that way. I have to do these things to earn a right standing with God. So I just wanted to actually open it up how should we then, it's that last question there, how should we then think about the law? How do we think about the Mosaic Covenant? How should it be used in the Christian life? You can think about it for a little bit. We've got about five minutes, let's just say. I want to spend some time. How do we think about the law? How do we think about the Mosaic Covenant? How should we use it as Christians, believers? Emma? Yes. And the law gives us more practical, tangible examples of how we 
Yes, very good. Yeah, one thing I, I do want to leave you guys with here, because I've been talking about kind of how the law is a ministry of death, and it seems like it's really bad. I mean, Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, so we have to, I mean, Paul wrote Romans and he wrote 2 Corinthians. Okay, so he can say both. He's not contradicting himself, but we have to hold both truths together. So, good point. Is that Teresa? Yeah. <coughs> Shows us our need for Christ. Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can say, yeah, I'm saved. And then we can say, look how good I'm doing. Look at my standing with Christ because I've done. And it's like, no, you have a good standing with Christ because of what Christ has done for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, if we take both what Emma and Liz said um, into mind, it reveals God's character um, and you know, we think about our hearts. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount, um, when we use the law, we should consider that this shows like what God wants our hearts to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we're pressing forward in sanctification, not as a means to salvation, but God doesn't want us to be angry. He doesn't want our thoughts to be lustful. Like God wants our whole person. Mm-hmm. Like he, he wants to be our Lord, not yeah. just, you know, he doesn't care about you being Mr. Ritualistic. <coughs> Christian indeed and only. Like, he wants right. your heart. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. The heart, yeah, we can downplay the importance of the heart. Yeah, Travis? Um, Maybe think of the verse in Romans, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in that walk not in the flesh, but after the Spirit. So if you're walking in the Spirit, it's not like we're innocent, you're going to love the things of God, you're going to want to establish the law of God. Yeah. Yeah, no, great point. Yeah, Romans 8 is very helpful on this, right? Um, I mean, I just opened my, just turned to Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, right? So that, is that the verse you quoted, I think, even? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He has done it. Yeah. Jeff, did you have your hand? Well, I was going to say, Right. Interaction, understanding our duties and <coughs> responsibilities to others, yep. society, people, and then Christ tells us as well. Yep. Uh, the greatest law is to love the Lord your God with all your yep. heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Likewise. Yep. So it, it's bifurcated there too. The Ten Commandments, yeah. first four, right. God, right. last six. So really, yeah. Refocuses and my. I'm usually failing the first one, right? Yeah. And that's why we failed the latter six. Yeah. So I think for me, it's it's always uh, the perspective are you paying attention to these things? Right. Who God is, uh, which I'm failing. Yeah. And then I'm probably right. I should be paying attention to the community, uh, society as well. Yeah. Yeah. No good stuff. Yeah. I just wanted to wrap up. 
I remember I was reading a book by, uh, it was a Reformed, it was a Lutheran pastor, and he, ma- <clears throat> he said, he's like, I wanna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state something extreme to try to make a point. And he's like, I'm going to say something bold. And it's like, oh, okay. Um, and he said this, he was talking about this issue. He says, sanctification does not come by means of the law. I agree with him on that. This last part here, I'm like, this is bold. He says, the law of God should never be used to motivate or empower the Christian life. And I think what he's getting that there is a very helpful principle. Um, I don't know if I would say never. Um, maybe what he's trying to hit on there is the law of God should never be used to motivate or empower. I think I would say the law of God can never empower, but I think the law of God can motivate, and I think that's good. Um, but what he's getting at, I think, is Romans six fourteen. <clears throat> he says, uh, the whole context here is Romans 6 is talking about, you know, we're, we're dead to sin, we're alive to God. How then, you know, should we, how should we then live, right? Do we just, does not matter how we live? Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Don't do that. Okay, well, how does this all work? And he talks about, you know, let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body and make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. grace. Okay. It's actually very helpful. I was studying through this. I preached through this on a Sunday night, and it was just like, whoa, light bulb moment came on for me. Like if in our growth in sanctification, let's just say, we're fighting the battle for sanctification just with the weapons of, I can't do this. I can't do this. I know I need to do this. Boom, boom, boom. It's not going to work because the Bible tells us we're no longer under law. We're actually under grace. So the grace of God in Christ is actually the power that empowers godly living, okay? So just word for, I want to say word for the wise, but hopefully we're all wise thinking through this, right? Like, uh, you're helping yourself or you're helping other people. Don't just go immediately to, you can't do this, you can't do this. Typically speaking, if someone has come to you for help, with like biblical counseling, they know what they're doing is wrong, okay? So it doesn't really do you much good to be like, well, yeah, you're right, it's wrong. Look, God's word says it's wrong. It's like, I know. Uh, sometimes we do need to be shown what's wrong. But what we need to show people is the grace and the power to no longer be enslaved to that sin. Okay? So that's great. Hey, I'm glad we talked about that. That's some very important stuff. I'm going to leave you guys there. And next week we'll get to the wicket gate.